Talk Roundtable podcast and for class commentary. This is the first of a two-part episode where we take a look at the first 100 days of the Trump administration. In this episode, Jonathan Armstrong leads a discussion of the Trump administration devolution of privacy shields, GDPR, and what they may mean for American companies doing business in the United Kingdom and the EU. He discusses the key differences in the Department of Justice's evaluation of corporate compliance programs under an FCPA analysis and under the UK Bribery Act. Differences in the EU approach to conflict minerals and under the Trump administration and concludes by giving us his thoughts on what Brexit means for compliance. Jay Rosen considers the intersection of business and politics under the Trump administration as it relates to compliance, the business response he has observed to the Trump administration's steps and missteps, and the comments made by Department of Justice representatives at 2017 Q1 conferences and indeed the vibe of the corporate compliance attendees. Next week, we'll have Matt Kelly and Mike Volkoff. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the compliance evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance, the first 100 days of Trump episode. As always, we have the top four or four of the top compliance um, practitioners, pontificators, and commentators uh, to join us on our panel. And our panel consists of Jay Rosen. Jay is the Vice President, Business Development and Corporate Monitoring at Affiliated Monitors. Mike Volkoff, one of the top FCPA commentators and practitioners around and the Chief Executive of the Volkoff Law Group. Matt Kelly, Founder and CEO of Radical Compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, our UK colleague, a, a lawyer or a partner, rather, with Quarterly Compliance in London. So with that, gentlemen, uh, I really have been looking forward to this. I wanted to, to go in-depth on the first 100 days of Trump, what it has meant for compliance. Uh, you guys have all been out in the compliance community extensively over the last uh, 100 days and, and what you are seeing. So uh, with that, Mr. Armstrong, uh, you have, in addition to dealing with uh, the U.S. administration, you're dealing with uh, a change in the British relationship to the um, European Union through Brexit. So I was wondering if you might start off by talking to us a little bit about what the um, Brexit means for both compliance and uh, business or transactional work, really as opposed to the political side of things. Yeah, thanks, Tom, and um, uh, thanks all for listening. And a particular thanks, I think, to the Trump administration for making British politics look sane, because otherwise it would look completely crazy. Um, I think as far as Brexit's concerned, then obviously we've had all sorts of issues. I can remember saying in January that I thought almost the only hope for those uh, of us, and I put my cards on the table, who are, who are Remainers, might be opposition in the House of Lords. And I think that's more or less why we have an election, that the there is a majority in the House of Commons uh, by constitution. The House of Lords can't block the will of the House of Commons, but we've got a, Lords, a House of Lords that wants to examine the fine detail of what uh, Theresa May is up to. They're very capable of doing that because, you know, we have uh, some very senior politicians, people from all walks of life in the House of Lords. I think they are determined to give some proper supervision to the 
government's plans. And when they do that, Theresa May's majority looks fairly slim, because even though, as I say, constitutionally, the Lords won't block the Commons, some in the Commons, in the face of a very reasoned opposition from the House of Lords, may feel that their loyalty to the country is stronger than their loyalty to the party. So I, I think that, in short, while we've got an election, there are all sorts of what I hope are sideshows, but may not be around uh, Scottish devolution, etc. And I think the consequences for the uh, for businesses are unfortunately some uncertainty. I don't yet detect a drop in investment in the UK. In fact, I see something of the opposite with some clients investing in the UK because they think Brexit means that the UK will have an ability to do more deals, particularly on sales tax, so particularly for online players. I see them looking with renewed interest at the UK. I also see, I've spoken to a few clients who actually say that tech businesses particularly, I know some are discreetly moving jobs from San Francisco to London currently because of uh, developers, for example, of Indian origin in particular, seem, they seem to think will be safer in the UK than the US, and they're trying to avoid any form of delay at airports, et cetera, et cetera, for those, for those Asian workers. So whether that's a short-term relocation, I don't know, but, but, but I know that there are instances of that happening. But the Brexit piece is going to dominate our minds for the next, next five or six weeks again, I suspect, as all of the main political parties set out their position. So, Jonathan, um, in terms of uh, one of the political points, though, I wanted to follow up on because it's it's not something that's really well understood here in the United States, and that was Theresa May called for something we've heard phrased as a snap election. Can you explain what that means and what it might mean for the Brexit process going forward? Yeah, well, our elections, generally speaking, aren't as sort of uh, all-encompassing as yours in that, for example, the parties are not allowed to buy TV advertising and they are allocated a certain number of free minutes, which depends on the popularity of the party. So it's not like, you know, when I've been in the, in the US, when I yearn for a car dealership or ambulance chasing lawyer to break up the monotony of the, the ad breaks. Uh, our elections tend to be, you know, relatively, I mean, there obviously there's a campaign, but it doesn't tend to be all embracing. And the idea, I think, of having a SAP election is that we'll, you know, we'll consolidate that process even more by having a limit on the campaign time. And I think Theresa May's logic for that is partly because the opposition parties are weakened at the moment, so she's able to capitalize on that, and partly because she wants to get uh, moving given that the, uh, 
that the notice has been triggered to the uh, EU and she recognises that, that, that there's a short space of time to negotiate. So it is somewhat unusual but not unique that she's called for a, a shortened election cycle. Jonathan, you, you just touched upon the uh, one of the reasons for uh, Prime Minister May doing that, which was the uh, really uh, the state of the Labour Party in uh, Britain these days. And I've read uh, reports that, um, if not a landslide, there may be certainly a large number of seats that would go to the Tory party. Uh, in the past, uh, in the prior Tory administration under Prime Minister Cameron, Theresa May at least publicly considered um, moving the SFO into uh, 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 closing it down as a separate independent office and moving it to another agency in the United Kingdom. Uh, would you be able to even look further down the crystal ball and see if, if she got a 50 or 100 seat majority? She might be able to implement some of the other policies beyond Brexit. Or do you think Brexit's going to really be so encompassing for the next two to four years that that will be what the British government will focus most of its energy and political capital on? I think the latter, to be honest. Um, it's um, Again, there's uh, very big differences between the UK system and the US. David Green, the director of the SFO, isn't really a, a, a political appointee. The, the, the director of the SFO doesn't change with the administration. And, of course, he's at the end of his final term. He said, he said that publicly. The difficulty might come with replacing him there is a, a, a drain from the SFO, unfortunately, with people moving from the SFO into private practice. That is in part because of the question marks over their future. And so it could be that a new government of whatever flavor struggles to recruit talent at the SFO, and as a result, you know, there is a scenario on which, for example, at the end of David Green's term, it's merged into some other place. Now, that probably um, was more likely to happen uh, before the uh, before the Rolls Royce prosecution, and obviously, the SFO has got some fairly big things on at the moment. You know, Alstom being one and um, an Airbus potentially being another, for example. It's, it's also uh, has uh, some sort of a deal with, with Tesco, although the details of that aren't, uh, aren't for this discussion. But uh, so, so there are a few cases that the SFO has on. If it loses one, then obviously it's under greater pressure. If it continues its winning streak after Rolls-Royce, then, um, then it's under less pressure. I personally think that Theresa May probably has bigger fish to fry, but of course it could be that there's a cabinet change as well. And if you get somebody who's got plans uh, for the you know, unified agencies, then they could, uh, could gain sway. Jonathan, if I could ask you to turn now to something that you visited with us uh, on uh, previously, but is still on ongoing discussion, and that's Privacy Shield and GDPR and uh, privacy data protection and, and several of those issues. Um, is there any um, less cloudy view in Europe 
about what the Trump administration may portend for either or both, rather, the EU and uh, the United Kingdom going forward in those areas? No, I think it's something where we haven't still had a lot of clarity. Uh, there are a few things going on. There's a decision awaited in what's called the Schrems 3 case. So this is the – it was the Schrems case that struck down Safe Harbor initially, Safe Harbor being replaced by Privacy Shield. That hearing uh, has now taken place in Dublin. It's a reserved judgment. We're waiting for that judgment. I was in Ireland on Friday uh, talking to people very close to the situation on both sides there. And uh, and my understanding is that, that uh, you know, we can expect that judgment any day soon, but but we're not, um, you know, we're not precise as to timings on that. So that could have an impact. The European Parliament have repeated their dissatisfaction at some of the things that the Trump administration is doing relating to privacy. But again, that's nothing new. That was entirely predictable. The Trump administration have met with Vera Yarova, the commissioner who leads data privacy, and they have said they intend to uh, take complaints seriously, but that's not a surprise. The Article 29 Committee have just issued, I think, this week some guidance on how to use the Privacy Ombudsman Scheme, but, but we knew that was coming. So I think in some respects it's business as normal. In some respects people are unhappy, and, and I think... I think uh, Trump has had some good fortune. There's a slightly amusing story about, um, as you might remember, one of the terms of Privacy Shield is that a, a ombudsman has to be appointed. And the amusing story seems to be that because Trump has a freeze on hires to new positions, this ombudsman hasn't been appointed. But there is apparently, this is obviously something Matt's likely to know more about than me, but there is actually apparently some sort of scheme whereby it rosters to the next available person in a next available department or whatever that might be. And apparently there's somebody uh, pro-temming in the role who's an expert in, I think, whaling and fisheries uh, <laughs> is the current occupant of the Privacy Shield Ombudsman role by default. But apparently, lo and behold, she tends uh, turns out to be a lawyer who's got some experience of privacy issues in private practice. So this, you know, almost <laughs> complete good fortune. Uh, and, and, and yes, it's amusing, but also had it been a less able candidate, then I think we would have got uh, privacy regulators and the parliament kicking up, kicking up more of a fuss. So I think in some respects, Trump's had some good fortune, really. Uh, with uh, with Privacy Shield in particular. So, uh, anyone else have uh, any questions on uh, Jonathan's uh, initial remarks? Well, Jonathan, um, do you see any deadlines coming up around Privacy Shield that uh, we need to be cognizant of, or uh, dates that uh, maybe you could uh, pencil in for us that? Uh, we could look at for further information from either the EU or the United Kingdom? 
I think the um, I think the Schrems three decision is going to be very interesting, whichever way it goes. There's a couple of other challenges to Privacy Shield from uh, pressure groups. One is Irish-based. One is French-based. There's a procedural hearing likely in those cases with the Commission basically saying that these privacy groups don't have the standing to bring the litigation. Interestingly, I hear that the US government may be trying to join into those proceedings as well as joining into the Schrems III proceedings as sort of amicus curiae role. Um, and um, so that might be one to watch. Uh, and I think, uh, again, the difficulty we have is that there is still a lot of volatility. If the Trump administration were to do something ad hoc, even so much as a tweet, then that can alter the situation. Barry Yarova is trying to pull off this unusual strategy of saying that my annual review will take place on the 15th month anniversary rather than what some of us believe to be a year that lasts 12 months. Um, so <laughs> if she can pull that off, good. I mean, I think it was the Romans who last managed to successfully alter the calendar in Europe, but, but she may be able to do that. Um, and um, yes, I think going forward, a lot of volatility and, and a lot of moving parts. And so Privacy Shield, I still don't think, has a long-term future. But in some respects, Brexit has directed the attention of those in Brussels to, to other things, not least of which, of course, is a potential attack on the UK as a safe place for data transfer, and partly because of Theresa May's uh, Investigatory Powers Act and partly because of the perceived interest of the um, of the UK security services in looking at data, although not to the extent that Sean Spicer would have us believe. <laughs> so, Jonathan, um, we have seen uh, a bit of an uptick in, if not uh, European-based anti-corruption enforcement, at least Euro European-based anti-corruption investigation or noise about investigation. And I would point you to uh, the Italian government, which has been investigating E&I and Shell over a deal in Nigeria and wants to take uh, the current and former CEO of uh, E&I to jail. We've had uh, French authorities and German authorities uh, talking about, if not investigating Airbus. We've now had French prosecutors talk about opening an investigation into FIFA around their awards of the 2018 and 2022 World Cup actions. Um, is this uh, trend something that uh, businesses in Europe and the United States and England are going to need to be more cognizant of, or is this really just kind of a one-off on all of these, or do you see any trends going forward from any of that? No, I do see this as a trend, and I see some, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is right. I think we're seeing some very interesting things going on. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the French election, you could add to that as well, I think, with the um, allegations of corruption against candidates and how that's been regarded by people in, Fran in France, particularly 
against the um, uh, you know against the introduction of Safonder, their new anti-bribery law. I think we've also seen some, you know, I mean, particularly I, I was particularly um, interested in the statement that Tom Enders made uh, to the uh, to the press over Austria's investigation into Airbus. I mean, you, yes. you might know that the, very interesting, the, very interesting. And, and his, um, I mean, his statement was, uh, you know, not only saying the allegations are completely uh, unsubstantiated, but also saying really that this is driven by politics. Um, we've had similar, uh, you know, as I say, similar debates over. Uh, over Safander, but I, I think in some respects the driver for some of this is the amounts of money that the U.S. in particular has been hoovering out of, uh, do you use the word hoovering? Vacuuming out of, um, out of the economies of Europe. So if I speak to people in France, some of them are interested in Safander because there should be a fight against corruption on a global scale. And some of them are interested in Safonder because they think that the that French businesses have had to pay substantial fines to the U.S. administration, and the French economy has been deprived of, at the very least, tax on those payments, and ideally would like those payments to go to French schools and French hospitals rather than in the U.S. So, so there's a political element to a lot of these investigations as well. And I think in that respect, at least, uh, Tom Enders may be correct, although, uh, you know, obviously I'm not agreeing with his statement and I'm, I'm very surprised that he's made it in such black and white terms, particularly when, you know, Airbus are uh, under investigation um, and, and it's clear from the Rolls-Royce settlement that there is, I'll put it, I'll say no more than something to investigate. Well, almost $1.5 billion in fines and penalties assessed against uh, French-owned companies under the FCPA. So uh, there is certainly something to that part of it, Jonathan. Hmm. Uh, hoovering, yes, hoovering of uh, dollars to the United States. So uh, with that, Jay Rosen, Jay, you have been uh, going to lots of conferences this year, as is your general practice. And I was wondering, um, are, what are you seeing or hearing about the intersection of business and politics around uh, the Trump administration in the business response or maybe even, you know, in the compliance area? What are you seeing out there in the first hundred days? Well, thanks for the uh, opportunity to participate, Tom. Um, I've prepared some remarks around that, so I'm going to launch into my little section. And uh, then based on that, I'm sure you'll have some questions. And uh, I think it's fitting that I'm following Jonathan, so you will know these phrases as they come out of my mouth. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. These phrases are taken from the famous opening of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. 
It tells the story of the contrast and comparisons between London and Paris during the French Revolution. And the phrase points out a major conflict between family and love, hatred and repression, good and evil, light and darkness, and wisdom and folly. Dickens begins this tale with a vision that humanity, human prosperity cannot be matched with human despair. He, in fact, tells us about a class war being waged between the rich and the poor. It also speaks of a time of despair and suffering on one hand and joy and hope on the other. Sound familiar? This past Monday, uh, April 27th, at the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, an annual conference, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions addressed the ethics and compliance community for, for the first time, and he shared some of these following prepared remarks. First, he wanted to thank the ethics and compliance community for working so hard to ensure that companies and clients do the right thing. He went on to say the Department of Justice investigates and prosecutes people and companies that break the law, including laws that criminalize corporate misconduct. This is an incredibly important responsibility, and the men and the women of the DOJ take it seriously. Our work ensures that lawbreaking is punished and helps deter future bad behavior. I think I have the experience to properly evaluate a case. We will enforce the law and not back down to powerful forces, but will be fair, equal justice to rich and poor. But each case may bring a sign that something has already gone wrong. That is what work thinks is to prevent by building strong cultures of compliance within companies to deter illegal and unethical conduct. We, the Department of Justice, applaud those events. Our department would much rather have people and companies obey the law and do the right thing so we don't see them in court. So there's good work done by the ethics and compliance community to make the DOJ's job easier, and it makes our companies our companies and countries better. The second message that uh, AG Sessions went on to impart was he wanted to make clear that the DOJ under his leadership will be enforcing all laws. So that includes laws regarding to corporate misconduct, fraud, foreign corruption, and other types of white-collar crime. He understands that there can be some uncertainty when there is a new administration or new leadership at the Justice Department. And he's aware that during the first few weeks of his tenure, he's been ensuring that the department strengthens its focus on key issues. And those run from dealing with transnational cartels, gangs, human traffickers, and drugs and violence, which pervade our communities. These are important priorities for the DOJ, but focusing on these challenges does not mean that they will reduce efforts in other areas. Uh, Trevor McFadden, who is the principal deputy, acting principal deputy assistant attorney general, also spoke on these matters, both on May 20th, rather April 20th and April 18th. In his um, remarks on the 20th, he addressed the ACI's 19th Annual Conference on Foreign Corrupt Practices Acts, and he commenced his remarks by saying, I would like to address the suggestions from some that the Department of Justice no longer is interested in prosecuting white-collar crime. I intend to dispel that myth. While we are boosting our focus on violent crime prosecutions, the criminal division is fully engaged in combating crime in all its forms. Later in his remarks, he said, 
we remain motivated as ever by the importance of ensuring a fair playing field for honest corporations doing abroad, doing business abroad. The department continues to vigorously enforce the FCPA. The department is committed to enforcing the FCPA and to prosecuting fraud and corruption more generally. The department does not make the law, but is responsible for enforcing the law, and we will do so. Also earlier, as I referenced on April 18th, he pledged similar support to the FCPA at the Anti-Corruption, Export Control, and Sanctions 10th Compliance Summit. So if you're keeping score at home, we have three speeches with three definitive statements that the DOJ is still in the FCPA and white-collar crime prosecution mode. But let's take a look and see what the numbers say. According to the FCPA blog, during the first calendar year, there were six corporate FCPA enforcement actions. Um, wait a sec. Sorry. Uh, six corporate FCPA enforcement actions and one individual resolution. The six settling companies paid a total of $256.5 million for the resolutions, and all six were announced in January. For comparison, in Q1 of 2016, there were eight corporate FCPA resolutions and three involving individuals. The companies that settled were Mondelez International, Zimmer Biomed Holdings, which uh, unfortunately was a recidivist, um, Sociedad Quimerica y Minera de Chile, Rolls-Royce, which Jonathan spoke about earlier, Orthovix International, another recidivist, and Las Vegas Sands. There was one individual settlement, Thomas uh, Morvai, a Hungarian citizen who was an executive of Magyar Telecom and agreed to pay a fine of $60,000. So it's interesting to note that five out of these six enforcement actions occurred before January 20th. So what has the current DOJ administration accomplished from an FCPA enforcement perspective and where are they going? Those two thoughts are being contemplated by the global business community, the FCPA bar, as well as practitioners and solution providers. It seems to be more of a wait and see game, but I am heartened at the response and presentations I attended at the recent ECI annual conference. From global food and consumer goods providers to healthcare and culture companies, there seems to be an overwhelming response to tying organizations, business culture and values with operational controls and concurrently educating employees by giving them the tools they need to do the right thing. In this lull of FCPA enforcement, we can take solace in the fact that many companies who take ethics and compliance seriously continue to talk the talk and walk the walk. But the more problematic issue may be the broken windows theory that DOJ's focus seems to be split by verbal promises to continue to enforce the FCA, FCPA, while at the same time giving their attention to combating a recent surge in violent crime and murder, restoring a lawful system of immigration, and distrust, disrupting transnational cartels, gangs, and human traffickers. I would like to bookend this, pun intended, and reference George Orwell's 1984. The book explains the concept of a perpetual war and the true meanings of the slogans, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. 
The novel is set in Airship One, once formerly known as Great Britain, a province of the superstate Oceania and the world of perpetual war, omnipresent government surveillance and public manipulation. This superstate is under the control of the privileged elite of the inner party, a party in government that persecutes individual and independent thinking as thought crime, which is enforced by the thought police. From an FCPA perspective, with an ode to Dickens, it is the best of times the current administration professes its unwavering support for FCPA enforcement, but at the same time, it's the worst of times. No noteworthy DOJ FCP settlements in Q1 of 2017. And we may be suffering from a brain and experience drain by not having enough prosecutorial resources to move forward on resolving the backlog of cases in FCPAQ. On the other hand, like Newspeak, the government's invented language in 1984. We seem to be playing and are distracted by a word game between fake news, the deep state, and other politically motivated euphemisms. So maybe George Orwell was right. War is peace. Freedom is, freedom is slavery. And from an FCPA perspective, with an administration avowing a tacit desire to support existing policy, while at the same time promising to speed up FCPA <clears throat> investigations, maybe the scales of justice right now are tipping a bit more towards the side of ignorance is strength. Lip service is fine, but until we see some teeth, I am less than sanguine on the direction FCPA enforcement is taking in 2017. So is that uh, something that you um, are either seeing out in the business community as you, you know, engage in uh, transactional work, Jay? Are you seeing that sort of same uh, skepticism in conferences? Is it a wait and see approach? How would you say the compliance community is responding um, to this first hundred days? Yeah, great question, Tom. I think, you know, um, like I said, at the ECI, uh, there were lots of large uh, multinationals uh, represented there. And one nice thing uh, was that they weren't there because they're doing their corporate penance. They aren't people who recently paid a fine and are, you know, doing the, uh, the FCPA perp walk. But they were out there, uh, companies that you may have heard of, companies that you may not have heard of, but they were all really engaged and invested in building their internal uh, ethics and compliance culture and really instilling values in their employee base on how to do the right thing. So it seems to me in just one year's time, about a year ago, one of the big presentations we saw at ECI was that Ford had uh, brought to market their own internal application called The Right Way. And this was uh, basically a tool that anyone could access off a notebook or uh, a smartphone, and you could basically interact with their code of conduct. And while they may have been a, a trailblazer, it seems within the last year there's been a real wide uh, adoption of that uh, with people understanding that, you know, not everybody has a desk job. Somebody's out in the field. Somebody's working on a pipeline. Somebody's, you know, restoring power in Manhattan. And all those things, uh, you know, there are lots of people there 
presenting about instilling culture. And furthermore, they were talking about um, controls, which I know are near and dear to your heart with building controls into your daily business processes. So I think regardless of whether or not the new administration has any new prosecutions out there, people are really bought into the fact that the benefits of having an ethically compliant business can really lead to you having a competitive business and advantage. And I think that's being negotiated in the news right now because the DOJ is trying to keep uh, um, monitor reports from Siemens uh, confidential because they feel that it may be uh, revealing a competitive advantage. So do you see, uh, you know, your business calls and the types of work that you do for affiliated monitors, really people embracing or businesses, I should say, embracing not only what I try to articulate that compliance is good for business, but really proactive compliance solutions rather than reactive? Yeah, that's that's, that's a great point, Tom. Um, My colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, who you spent some time with in Prague uh, earlier this year, uh, he has put together a really uh, wonderful presentation on the trends in monitorships, and there's a white paper and a PowerPoint deck that we can make available. And um, to your point, a lot of people are trying to go under these proactive monitors where they have reached out to uh, companies such as ourselves to come in and do an independent um assessment of their ethics and compliance, where the program is working, where it may potentially be deficient. And by doing this, they feel that they're getting um, a heads up on anything that may be happening. And should they find anything untoward, um, they may uh, initially begin those remedial steps. And should they decide that the calculus is right and if they go forward, um, with a self-report to the government, they've really shown um, their desire to be compliant and also to um, you know move things forward on their own terms. So we're seeing now that you have the monitor that is sometimes a result of a settlement, a DPA, an NPA, but we're also starting to see an increase in the uptake of people reaching out to do positive, proactive monitors. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We will conclude next week with thoughts from Mike Volkov and Matt Kelly and also everyone's rants. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast It was as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the top roundtable podcast in compliance. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join us next week for the conclusion of the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.